Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, then I would encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 25. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 25. And I'll begin by reading from verse 1. So, brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James to enter the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. 
And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, this past week, when I was driving to the church office, I listened to an episode of a podcast that I follow while driving. And after I got to church, I read a chapter of a book that I'm currently reading. And I don't believe in coincidence. I do believe in the providence of God. Uh, Both the episode and the chapter address the topic of persecution. And particularly, both highlighted the persecuted churches and Christians in Russia during the Soviet Union. Pastors suffered immense, severe and immense persecution in communist Russia. Christians couldn't get an education or keep a job. As and there is a Christian working on a PhD, but was forced to be expelled when discovered to be a follower of Christ. And certainly they faced martyrdom, torture, and imprisonment. If not a registered church, these Christians were forced to gather in secret, uh, such as meeting in a forest. And a meeting location would, uh, would not be announced until the day before Sunday, because they were like nomads, and, they, and their gathering place changes uh, week after week. And some Christians there were betrayed by some of the attendees for disclosing the location of the secret gathering place to the officials. Even today, many Christians live under similar situations in the Islamic world or under aggressive atheism of communism. And so in this passage that we just read, we see another affliction. We see another persecution of the church of Jesus Christ. Many of the persecutions that we have witnessed in the book of Acts were perpetrated by the Jewish council. Now the persecution has entered into the next wave. And that is the persecution for the political authority, namely Herod of Agrippa I. Now Herod was educated and he was raised in Rome. Uh, he, he reigned from Judea from AD 37 to AD 44. And he's the, great, he's the grandson of Herod the Great. Apparently he did not have a good relationship with Rome. He was imprisoned by the Roman Emperor Tiberius. He was then released from prison after Tiberius' death and then eventually ruled over Judea. And since he did not have a good relationship with Rome, it was important for him to maintain a good relationship with the Jewish people. Since the Jews and the religious leaders hated the followers of Jesus Christ, Herod decided to persecute the Christians as a way to please them. And that's what we see here in this text. You see, the enemy will do whatever it takes to stop the church from growing and stop the gospel from advancing. And in this case, Herod was God's enemy. And it's never a good idea to be on that side of God's relationship. And so as we consider and think about what's happening around the world, it just seems like evil is constantly winning the battle. It it just seems like the church is dying and losing. It just feels that way with the war happening in Ukraine. It It seems like the culture and the world is gaining a lot of popularity and God's truth is becoming more and more unpopular 
and being hated. And so I want to begin our exposition of God's word with this first point, and that is the reality of evil. The reality of evil, because it is a reality. We are living in one. And so in this text, we see that Herod laid violent hands on those who belong to the church. The persecution of the church is evil in of itself. It is immoral and wicked. Now, in North America, we may hear stories of churches being persecuted in the other side of the world, uh, such as China and the Middle East, and the persecution results in them getting imprisoned and having their lives taken away. But we, but we can witness the reality of evil in different ways. We can witness the reality of evil in different ways. We've heard about it in recent times, the, the evil of the school shooting in Texas and even in Oklahoma. We see the evil of abortion, the slaughter of many innocent babies in the womb. We see the evil of fighting against God and unbelief and breaking his precepts. We see, even this month, the, the evil of celebrating sexual immorality, orgy, and perversion during Pride Month. We see the evil of redefining God's design for marriage, gender, and family. We see all of that. The reality of evil is all over us because our postmodern society is doing exactly what Israel did and doing what, exactly, what God condemned back in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Evil can take in the form of many forms, and in this case, persecution, execution of God's people. And that's what we see here with James and Peter. Herod killed James with a sword. He's the first martyr in the circle of the apostles. He's the brother of the apostle John, who contributed some of the writings of the New Testament. And it's just like letting you know, there are many different James here in the, in, the New, in the New Testament. And so he's not the same James. I don't think he's the same James who wrote the letter. Furthermore, Herod arrested Peter, the leader of the apostle. And all of this happened, all of this happened during the unleavened bread, which was the Passover. Now, why did Luke include this festival at the as the backdrop of Herod's persecution of the church. There could be two reasons, and that is Luke might be drawing our attention to Jesus Christ since he was tried, since he was arrested and executed and beaten in the same season. It's also possible that Herod strategically chose the Passover season to commit his evil act because there would have been many Jewish pilgrims entering to Jerusalem to maximize the coverage and support. And notice how the church responded when Peter was in prison. See, when evil happens, when we see the reality of evil, should we panic? Should we be in fear? I mean, well, perhaps since, perhaps since that's a normal reaction, a normal human reaction, but it says here at the end of verse 5 that the church you know, there was that earnest prayer for him, for Peter, was made to God by the church. That's how they responded. That's how the church responded. And when evil occurs in our life, it should encourage, and it should motivate Christians to pray. Don't you think? The church don't, didn't just pray for Peter, but they prayed earnestly for Peter, which can also mean they pray without ceasing. 
See, when you face evil in your own life, especially as a Christian, it is an opportunity for you to pray. What did the church pray about? Of course, they pray for Peter, but notice what the text doesn't say. The text doesn't tell us that the church asked God to rescue Peter out of prison. I mean, it's possible that they did, but I don't think the church presumed upon God to rescue Peter from prison because they didn't believe that Peter was in front of their, front, in front of their door later on in the chapter. And plus, James was killed and Peter was next. So what I think was happening in this text is that through their prayer, they utterly depended upon God, the sovereignty of God, to fulfill His will, fulfill His purpose, even though from their point of view, they didn't know what Peter's outcome will be. See, despite the reality of evil, we must understand as Christians that God is greater and more powerful than evil. And in this passage, we will learn that evil will not triumph. And I can say that with confidence, not only because of the biblical accounts, but history backs us up as well. Not only will evil not triumph, but evil will be laughed at and mocked by God. Psalm chapter, one, chap, Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their course from us. He, that is God, Yahweh, who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You know what they're saying? God mocks at the evildoers here. And so we will see here that's point number two, and that is the foolishness of evil. The foolishness of evil. And this is the point I want to make here. It's going to cover most of the sermon. I want to show you that this chapter is rather comical because I believe God who inspired... the foolishness of evil in this narrative. Take a look at verse 4 here. Take a look at verse 4. Herod treated Peter like a notorious criminal. He ordered four squads of soldiers to guard him. And this was the usual Roman practice of changing guards every three hours through the 12-hour night shift in order to assure maximum alertness. So you have two guards being by Peter's side as he's chained. And then you have two other guards keeping watch at the prison door. That's what it says later on in verse, four, in verse 6. See, they treated him like a dangerous criminal. But that's rather silly and irrational because we know that's not Peter. He's not an activist. He's not an insurrectionist. He's not a revolutionist. He's not a murderer. He's an apostle. He's a witness of Jesus Christ. He's a fisherman. And yet they treated him like a terrorist. And Herod intended to bring him out to the Jewish people after the Passover to be put on trial and most likely to be executed. You see, evil is intimidating. Is, is intimidating. See, the idea of impending death gives people a lot of distress and anxiety. But when you look at Peter here, how did he respond to his persecution? What was his reaction to all of this? 
Look at verse 6. Look closely at verse 6. When, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, sleep, Peter was doing what? He was sleeping. Sleeping? He believed it. There's no time for sleep. There's no time to sleep. You're about to die. Shouldn't you be worrying? Shouldn't you be imagining and overthinking what will happen to you? I mean, that, that, that's, maybe that's us when we think about death, right? But that's not how Peter responded. How did Peter, res- how did Peter learn to sleep during his suffering? Peter actually practiced what he preached. He wrote this in 1 Peter. I would encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 7, where Peter says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. See, Peter, during that time, he wrote First Peter to the Christians who were suffering under tyranny. And Peter provided Christians the remedy to battle anxiety and worry, which was humbling themselves. To humble themselves. That's a commandment. That's an imperative. Quite hard to do, right? Why humble? Why are we called to humble ourselves? Because it is because worrying is a form of pride and sin. Because it involves taking your, your concerns upon yourself instead of entrusting your concerns to God. And in their suffering, Christians are to give themselves entirely to God, submitting to his infinitely wise counsel of their lives. Peter certainly demonstrated how to live that out in the face of suffering, right? He lived it out by sleeping. And he did so without taking sleeping pills. You know, people suffer insomnia and a lack of sleep most of the time because they're constantly anxious about something. What are you currently facing that is giving you a lot of anxieties? Hopefully you can learn to trust God here in this passage and what he has done for you and fight against anxiety and, wor- and worry by the grace of God and to throw yourself in the arms of God and, and your concerns to on him because he cares for you. And like Peter, sleep sl- soundly because honestly, there are some times in life, there are certain times in life and situations, things are just out of your control. You can't do anything to change the situation, but what you can do is you rest in the Lord. So going back to the text, just when Peter was about to be brought out, just when, just when Peter was about to be brought out to be tried and about to be executed, an angel of the Lord appeared and stood next to him. And you know that's an angel because you know, a light shone in the cell. And after the appearance of the angel, you notice that Peter was still sleeping. He didn't wake up from that. And so the angel struck Peter and woke him up. You know, this word strike, uh, strike just means physically to strike a blow, to wake him up. And that's actually the same word used later on in chapter 12, verse 23, where when, a- when a- the angel struck, Peter, uh, struck Herod down, although that word is used differently in a different context. But we'll get to that later. But notice this, that the angel just didn't tap Peter, say, hey, Peter, just wake up, man. No, the angel just hit him, just to wake him up. 
Because you were sound asleep in the middle of the night. Just think about yourself. Think about being struck by your parents or your spouse or by your children and being dragged out of bed like that in the middle of the night to go somewhere. Indeed, Peter was being dragged out, not out of bed, but out of prison. See, what's also amusing here in this passage is that after being woken up by the, by the angel, Peter thought that this, this, was, this was a dream. He didn't believe it was real. He didn't think this whole prison break was real. And I can't blame him for that because he just had a vision in chapter 10 where he, had to, where he was told to eat unclean animals. So, but what's interesting about this prison break was that this, this whole thing was a miraculous event. Why was it a miraculous event? Well, take a look. First, his chains fell off in verse 6, and they were usually attached to the guards next to him, and the guards were most likely sleep, sleeping since Peter was sleeping. And somehow the loose chains didn't get the guards' attention. And second, Peter followed the angel past the first and, first and second guard, presumably those who were guarding the door, the prison door. They were also, most likely, asleep. And Peter wasn't caught by them. What are the chances of them all sleeping at the same time while they're supposed to be alert? Third, look at, look at, look at verse 10. They came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them of its own accord, of its own accord, automate. That's where we get our word automatic. It opened automatically by itself. This is all a miracle. And after getting out of prison and back into the city, the angel you know, immediately left him. Presumably, he knew, that he knew uh, where Peter was going. Peter knew where he was going. And now, here in, verse, in this passage, Peter snaps out of it. And he came to realize that, oh, this, was, this whole prison break was real. And so he went back to the church who were currently gathering the house of Mary. And, since, and so when Peter got to Mary's house, he knocked at the door and Rhoda, the servant girl, just answered the door. And she heard Peter's voice. Now, when she heard Peter's voice, she was filled with joy. She was filled with enthusiasm and, and he was just ecstatic. It was funny. She, was, she felt so excited to the point that she just forgot to open the door for Peter. And instead, she, she went and told and reported the people about it. However, the church responded rather, ne rather negatively towards Rhoda. They thought that she was crazy. They thought that she was out of her mind. You know, Rhoda, you're maybe just praying for too long, so you just need to drink some water and just snap out of it. Uh, <clears throat> so, but they didn't believe her because they thought that the idea of Peter being in front of the door was crazy because Peter was in prison. At least that's what they thought. They might have told Rhoda, didn't you see that Peter was arrested and put in prison? How is it possible for him to be here? And perhaps maybe they thought that Peter, uh, it wasn't Peter, but rather the authorities. But some in that group just gave her a benefit of doubt and just believed in Rhoda, but maybe not entirely, but they indicated that it was his angel. It was his angel. But Peter just kept knocking, said, hey, let me in. And so the church all heard the noise, 
and responded by opening the gate and to get into the courtyard, and it was Peter. It was Peter in flesh and blood, and they were amazed. They were ecstatic, and they were celebrating that Peter wasn't executed. But Peter just tells them, no, I know you're happy, but no, just quiet down. No, don't draw attention from the crowd. Uh, and he explained to them how he got out of prison. It was all a miracle. And he told them, you know, knowing that you heard all, all that happened to me, go and tell James and to the brothers. And that's why I told you there are different James in the Bible. This is a different James. And he most likely was the leader of the Jerusalem church. So here, at the end of verse 17, what you need to notice is this. He, Peter departed, and he went to another place. Where did he go? We don't know. We're not told. Perhaps most likely hiding from the authority. We don't know where he went. But you know what that means? You know what this means? Two things. What this means is that it's not wrong. It's not a bad thing to seek safety for yourself if your life is being threatened by persecution. And second, what this also means is that miracle, the miracle that he experienced that during the prison break was exceptional. It was never meant to be the norm. Peter didn't presume upon God to protect him and rescue him again. He didn't think, well, if, he didn't think, well, if God rescued me from prison, then I should just go and confront Herod and then get thrown to prison again and trust that God will break me out of prison again. That's not what he did. That's not what he did. God has given us common sense and normal means to make wise decisions on the outcome of life. You see, just because God did something miraculous one time in our life, it doesn't mean that God is obligated to do it again. Nor should we presume upon him to do it again by being reckless and foolish. And so I think Peter made the right decision of hiding. And it is really in this verse, in this verse here, where we see Peter's exit. We see Peter's exit, and he'll return one more time in, in later on, chapter 15, verse 1, in the Jerusalem Council. But after that, he disappears altogether. And here, I want you to notice something. Here, you see kind of like a TV show kind of scene where you have two scenes. One scene is, this is happening. But meanwhile, while that's happening, let's all look at what's happening over here. So here, in, in verses 18 to 19, we see that while Peter went to another place, meanwhile, Luke draws our attention back to Herod's headquarters, where the soldiers who were guarding Peter were wondering, what happened to Peter? What happened to this guy? Now it, said, now it says here that there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. And this word disturbance means to be in a state of distress and great anxiety, which borders on fear. See, there was an uproar. There was a panic. There was confusion over what happened to Peter. See, during that time, during the ancient world, soldiers, Roman soldiers, had a critical duty to make sure that the prisoners would not get away. Remember, arresting Peter was a way for Herod to appease the Jews. And now, now that he's, in, he's missing, there would be a fatal and dire consequence for these guards. 
Unfortunately, here, Herod couldn't find Peter anywhere. Therefore, Herod cross-examined the sentries or the guards. Herod thought that they were asleep, perhaps, but some have commented and noted that Herod suspected that the guards here were aiding Peter's escape. And this kind of cross-examination included interrogation and torture. It was brutal to the point that the guards would rather kill themselves to escape this persecute, uh, to escape execution than to go through this whole examination. And you notice that later on in chapter 16 where, where Paul got out of prison and then the soldiers, the Philippine jailer, jailer wanted to kill himself. And so now the guards are dead. And now Luke turns our focus to the man himself, Herod as he returns to Caesarea. And this is where we will learn about the fate of Herod. So we learn about the reality of evil, we learn about the foolishness of evil, and now we will learn about the defeat of evil. The defeat of evil. Evil is less powerful than our sovereign God. Evil is no match for our God. Evil has no control over our God. He is sovereignly in control, even over evil. We know, that, we know about that in Mary's many passages. For, for instance, Genesis 50, verse 20, that God used evil for a good purpose. And God will defeat evil, and he will do so once and for all. And in this portion of Scripture, the death of Herod serves as an example of the defeat of evil. And now it's, it's unclear how long it's been, it's been since the previous verse, but now we're introduced to a new scene where Herod has to deal with the people of Tyre and Sidon, folks who live in the Phoenician area, which is the northern part of Israel. And right now, Herod was caught in a dispute with these locations over the provision of food, and the people, then the people bribed Blastus, the king's chamberman, to serve and to act as an intermediary. And so with this new arrangement, everyone was, was happy with each other, and they all found peace. And so in verse 21, Herod throws a commemoration and delivers an oration to them while seated upon the throne. And in response, the people shouted, the voice of a god and not of a man. Herod accepted such flattery. He didn't rebuke them nor reject them. And because of that, immediately an angel of the Lord same angel that broke Peter out of prison struck him down because he did not give God the glory. See, there's a commandment in the Ten Commandment that tells us, thou shall not steal. One of the many things we cannot steal or shouldn't steal and must not steal is God's glory because God gives his glory to no one. That is the peril of pride. See, what you need to notice about this word, struck down, doesn't actually mean that God killed Herod immediately. I thought, I thought that was the case, but after doing much study, that's not the case. Because according to historians, Herod lingered on for five days, suffering with a terrible pain, as if there's a parasite eating him up on the inside. So in other words, 
Herod may have been inflicted by God with a disease of some kind. That's also another meaning for the word struck down, to inflict a disease. And that's also used in the book of Revelation. So regardless of what the disease was, Herod was powerless and weak to recover from this disease. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. He breathed his last. What an imagery of the defeat of evil. Evil will be defeated. Evil will not triumph. And we see scripture that God judged nations in the Old Testament, like Babylon. Babylon is a good example because God judged the king of Babylon like Nebuchadnezzar. You remember remember what happened to him in Daniel chapter 4? He took pride and glory for building the great Babylon. And then God drove him insane to become like an animal, living in the fields for seven years until he regained his sanity. And after gaining his mental sanity, he also gained a spiritual sanity where, where he praised God. But, while, but there's a difference here. While King Nebuchadnezzar received God's grace and mercy, King Herod received God's divine retribution. And hopefully none of us, none of you, will want to be in a position where you become glory thieves, where you steal God's glory. Even if you sin in this area, because we all struggle with pride one way or another, I hope that God's judgment won't come to you in the way that it came on Herod. And I hope that if you do sin in this area, that you will repent and learn to give God all the honor and glory. Because without him, you won't, you won't, you won't possess all, any of the good gifts that you currently have. And so that is the defeat of evil. Let us consider our final point. That is the powerlessness of evil. The powerlessness of evil. See, I think Luke wrote about Herod's death, not necessarily to teach us about not being glory thieves, although that is a principle, that is an application for us. Uh, But he included this passage to show you and me that the word of God increased and multiplied. See, Herod died, but the gospel and the word of God continued to advance, continued to spread. And here, the chapter ends with Barnabas and Saul returning to Antioch from Jerusalem, where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so, that's the conclusion of Acts chapter 12. And this is really the conclusion of the first part, if, I, if you will, the first part of Acts, or part one of Acts. And so starting in September, Lord willing, we'll pick, we'll pick back up uh, in Acts chapter 13, and, we'll, and then we'll begin to see the missionary work of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. But let's get back to the idea of evil and God's word. See, evil cannot, spread, cannot stop the spread of the gospel. Even evil isn't all powerful to stop the kingdom of God from advancing. Amen? See, God's word cannot be bound even though the enemy attempts to bind it. Herod couldn't do it. Herod died on his throne. But our Lord Jesus Christ is still on his throne. Herod's robe, royal robe, is being, was taken away. But our Lord Jesus will forever be robed in majesty and will never be taken away. Herod was just a man, but the Lord Jesus Christ is both God-man. Herod can be bound, but the word of God cannot be bound. And history has shown the foolishness of such attempt 
just in stopping the spread of God's word. During the 18th century, in the, in the era of the Enlightenment, there was a French philosopher by the name of Voltaire who tried to destroy Christianity, tried to destroy people from believing, from believing in the Bible and believing in Jesus Christ with his secular philosophy. And while he was alive, he predicted that in 50 years, remember, this, he said this in the 18th century, he predicted that in 50 years, people will forget about Jesus Christ and will stop believing in Christianity. Well, here's the irony. We're still here. Voltaire is dead, but Christianity and our Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible live on. That's just facts. That's just facts. Evil will not triumph. And so going back to the story that I told in the beginning about the Christians and the churches in Russia, the governing authorities have tried to persecute the church and to suppress the gospel from spreading. But eventually, the Christians in Russia, they persevere in their faith until the day when the Soviet Union fell in the 90s. And one of the most memorable part of this history was that this persecution forged the church to become pure, zealous for the truth, and deeply devoted to Christ. Here's the fact. Persecution never hurts the church. Persecution doesn't destroy the church. It actually makes it spiritually stronger and purer because it drives out and purges hypocrites, charlatans, compromisers, false teachers, and false believers. Why would a hypocrite want to suffer something that which he doesn't believe? See, despite living under communism, where true biblical Christianity is considered illegal, God has always had a way for people to come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. That's our, that's our hope. That's our encouragement this morning. Evil will not win. The victory belongs to God. And we know how the story will end in the book of Revelation. Evil will be defeated. It will be destroyed once and for all by our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns and judges his enemies with a rod of iron. He will come back. And if you don't know Christ this morning, if you don't know Christ this morning, then you need to know the gospel, which means good news. Some of you may have heard this many times. But I just want to remind you the good news is this. It's that you need to know the bad news first. It's that you have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And because of that, you deserve the wrath of God to come, deserve judgment and hell. But the good news is that God has a solution where your sins can be forgiven. That is, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, conquering Satan's sin and death to prove himself to be God. And he said, and he ascended back into heaven, seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, and he promised that he will come back again. So, my friends, the day is coming. Judgment is coming for those who don't know Christ. And if you repent of your sins, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God said this in Isaiah 45, verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, 
all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Will you come to Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this time where we can consider this passage. Thank you for the hope that you've given us. Thank you for the fact that you are still on your throne, that you are still ruling, that you're still sovereign over evil. And we know that evil will, not, will never triumph, ultimately, even though it seems like it. But you will defeat evil. So God, give us boldness, give us courage to face, to face the evil days, to be bold, to be firm in our faith, to be grounded in our faith. And in some, if there are some of us this morning who are struggling with our faith, with their faith, and I ask that you would help them to be grounded, help them to know that, help them to know that, God, you are there for them, to reassure them that you are there for them, and that you would convict them in any way to motivate them to be more firm and grounded in their faith. And if not, how will they face the day when when or if persecution comes to Canada. Oh Lord, I pray that you grant them grace and mercy. And so for all of us, for all of us who are here, help us to continue the mission that you've given us, to continue to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to proclaim his death, to proclaim his burial, to proclaim his resurrection, and to proclaim his coming. And we get to do that, Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, where we're reminded of this truth of the gospel. So, Lord, be with us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.